Chapter 17 Laddie Boy Durant pressed the pace. Morning turned to afternoon. Fatigue was setting in for all of them. Durant felt it stalking him, ready to pounce. It demanded every ounce of concentration he had to keep the double vision and dizziness that were threatening him at bay. He knew they needed to sleep, if just for a short while, or risk complete collapse. But it flew in the face of the terror pricking at his brain. Renoir caught up to him and spoke it plain. Lieutenant, we must out. Been thinking the same thing, but I don't know where, said Durant. Anywhere. It does not matter. We could not fight anyone as we are. They continued for another quarter of an hour before Durant came upon a raised peak surrounded by a small copse of trees. It had a good 360-degree line of sight, and the elevated vantage point offered at least a minimal amount of security. Durant brought them to a halt, and the group circled up around him. We'll rest here for an hour. I'll take the first watch. Sergeant Major Renoir will take the second. Go easy on the water. We'll have to forge for more this afternoon. Just make sure there's enough left over so we can drink before we get back on the trail. Durant heard echoes of his father's voice in the voice. He'd heard the same thing enough times when they were out running hunting parties. Francois offered Durant his man Bertier rifle. Take these. I do not know how much good she will do you, but she will be better than your pistol. You got a feeling if I have to use it, it'll already be too late. Francois shrugged. Even so. The group set down their weapons and packs and found what comfort they could on the ground. No one spoke, and within minutes, Durant was the only one awake, and just barely at that. He checked the action on Francois's rifle. He brought the buttstock to his shoulder and lined up the front and rear sights, scanning through the trees. He realized he had not fired a rifle in the woods in years. By the time he arrived at the western front, all the woodland near the line had been devastated. Their remnants lay, tumbled across the battlefield, or stood dead in place, not a leaf to be seen. The remaining humbled branches reaching out plaintively to the sky as if already blackened and dead, begging not to be shot again. But now, holding a rifle to his cheek in verdant woods, took him back to British Columbia and his father. Nathaniel Durant, the Patriarch, was an expert in the timber, second to none as a game hunter. He could shoot the eye out of an elk from 300 meters. He was also a common drunk and an uncommonly violent one at that. The off-season found him in a steady war with his affliction. In those months, his boys, David and Matthew, were certain to hear a knock at the door in the small hours and open it to find a bruised and snow-covered deputy, asking them to come over to the jail and post their father out. Nathaniel was a natural-born bully, and drink pushed him over the brink into viciousness. Their mother endured all that she could, one busted lip too many, and Helen ran from Nathaniel while he and the boys were out in the wild, running a hunting excursion for some eastern dandies. It had all become too much to bear and she did not have the courage to stay and try to save her children from him. Matthew was going on seventeen, and David had just turned thirteen. They were strong young men, 
sturdy and capable. To Helen's mind, it was all she could do to keep herself alive. The boys would have to fend for themselves. Privately, after her escape, Matthew and David chose to forgive her. Word came a year later from their distant Aunt Mary that Helen had passed of the influenza. Matthew and David stole a bottle of whiskey and celebrated her life with tears and drink, far away from where their father would ever know of it. He may have suspected what they were up to, but he never looked it face on. To do so would have been to acknowledge the shame of her leaving. So the next time he caught David, having failed to clean a rifle thoroughly, he took it out on the boy with his fists, a moment that would change the course of all three Durant men's lives. David remembered the door to his bedroom slamming open and his father's shape, an unsteady black mass in the portal. He did not recall what happened after the first blow, but he spent the next week laid up in bed, waiting for the purples, blues and yellows to recede, for the cuts in his mouth to heal as best they could, for the pounding headache to cease its throb. He counted himself lucky that the loosened teeth shored themselves up instead of greying and falling out. Matthew remembered everything. He heard the first screams from his little brother and came running. He struck his father with the broomstick as hard and as many times as he could, until Nathaniel turned on him and beat him roundly too. The next day, Matthew was gone just as his mother before him. He knew he could not stay and fight for his brother and hoped to survive, so he had grabbed what he could carry and fled before the sunrise. Durant had nearly fallen asleep. He shook himself to wakefulness and checked his watch. Half past. He knelt by Renoir and gently woke him. There was a long second, then Renoir started up fast, reaching for his pistol. It took a beat for him to realize where he was. Christ. Mes rêves. Cauchemar. Christ. My dreams. Nightmares. Durand spoke enough Quebecois French to understand the sentiment. Renoir stood and stretched himself to wakefulness. Bien. Sleep. I will wake you in half the hour. Durand lay down and succumbed. Merciful sleep embraced him, pulling him into its depths, into dreams that did not have any mercy to give. Four years passed after David's beating when a knock came at Nathaniel Durant's door. It opened to reveal Matthew Durant, now twenty-one, filled out into a man. Under his long duster, he wore a tailor-cut Edwardian suit. On his head, a black homburg tilted rakishly. He grinned at Nathaniel and extended his hand. Hello, Papa. Long time no see. Whatever feelings battled for supremacy under Nathaniel Durant's exterior did not reach the surface. After a brief moment, he reached out and accepted his eldest son's handshake. Don't let all my heat out. Come in if you're coming in. Matthew crossed the threshold. David had turned sixteen the previous winter. He stood slack-jawed behind his father, watching the exchange and his brother's return. Matthew walked through the door, and David grabbed him in a bear hug before the door found the jam. 
Matthew laughed and held his brother tight. Easy, big fella. You'll crease my suit. David laughed and wept at the same time. When Matthew's bags arrived from the station, David saw him tip the hyena half-breed boy who halted ten full dollars, enough for the kid to buy a suit that would rival Matthew's own. After sunset, the three sat around Nathaniel's drawing room, drinking the Glenlivet whiskey Matthew had brought with him. He went to refill his father's glass, but Nathaniel covered it with his palm. That'll do for me. Matthew paused and glanced at David with a grin. Well, that's got to be a first. Nathaniel accepted the jibe in stride. A lot's changed since you ran off. Ain't that the truth? David nodded. It has. Father's been near a teetotal the past two and a half years. Matthew smiled. Well now, I'm impressed. What turned the trick there? Nathaniel shrugged. Things got a bit out of hand, as it were. Just needed to get it reined in. So I did. Matthew twisted the cap back onto the whiskey and set it aside. Do tell. Nathaniel shrugged his shoulders and pushed his tumbler away. That's the long and the short of it. From the look of you, your story's more interesting than ours. Matthew laughed. That's one word for it, surely. David chimed in. Well, go on, spill it. Where you been? Seems like all over. Vancouver first. Cut timber for near on six months there. Nathaniel scratched his beard. Tough business, that. Matthew nodded. Yes, sir, it surely is. Ended up owing more money to the company store than they owed me in pay. Would have ended up in debtor's prison or owned by the bastards if I kept that up. So I went north with a handful of fellows I met in Gastown. Lumbermen, for the most part. We were aiming for the Klondike, or maybe Gnome, thinking we could form our own outfit and find that last vein of gold up there. David's eyes were wide. Did you? Matthew laughed. Hardly. <laughs> we weren't the only scrappy sons of bitches who had that thought. It's strip bear. Dawson is half a ghost town now. They say there were 100,000 up there at the peak in 98, maybe a tenth of that now. And what's left is drunks and thieves. And fill your ear all day with tales of their glory years, but I bet not one of them saw a nugget. The smart ones got their gold and got out. The smartest made big land grabs, then rented out the claims to Yankees, taking a big share of anything they found. Now that's the way to go. Get some other dumb, greedy bastard to do your digging for you. Is that what you did? Ha! <laughs> I wish. No, I was 15 years too late to get in on anything like that. We parted ways there. Some of the boys stayed in Dawson, some shipped back home. I didn't have two red cents to rub together, plus my debt to Hudson Bay. Staying in Dawson looked a good way to die a slow death one drink at a time. Didn't have the money for a fair home. What'd you do? What Papa taught us to do. I started hunting. There's no market for hunting excursion trips up there, per se. Too remote for rich fellas to want to make that trek. So we went after beaver pelts. Nathaniel laughed. That's a sucker's game. Doing Hudson's work for him. Matthew nodded in agreement. Crooked scum. If you're an engine trading for dry goods, bully to you. You trying to make a white man's profit? They're not who you want to be in business with. Can't be in the fur business with nobody else. Where there's a will, there's a way. We worked a deal with the Tuggish. Gave them a tenth of our take. The rest we shipped out on our own. Nathaniel smirked. 
Poached, then smuggled out, you mean? Matthew smiled and shrugged. Same difference. Not if the Mounties catch you. That goes without saying. But we were smart. Been lucky. We sailed it past Vancouver, down into San Francisco. Sold it at a hell of a profit. Banked half of it there and went back two more times before I decided to call it quits. David's forehead crinkled up. Why would you quit? Nathaniel's laugh cut off Matthew's response. Mounties aren't as thick as they look, he said. Matthew flushed a little and nodded in agreement. God's truth, you get one ace for ten deuces in that club. But once one of them aces is after you, best to take it on the heels. The lads at Hudson's had figured us out. Maybe we were trying to take too big a bite. So they sent the Mounties out in force. A fellow named Hamish Jarmish was the ranking officer. He and his boys taught me that I only ever want to be on one end of a rifle. I can tell you that. You got into a gunfight? Said David, awed. Matthew busted out laughing. If you call a gunfight, getting shot at and running away as fast as you can in knee-deep snow, then yes, I got into a hell of a gunfight with Hamish Jarmish and his Mounty boys. The Battle of Matthew Run. They all laughed hard at the quip. Matthew smiled, chagrined at the memory. So needless to say, the final trip up was a complete loss. For some of us more than others. Nathaniel's laughter faded, and his eyes narrowed. Are you on the wanted list, laddie boy? There was a pause, and a tension in the room that had not been there since Matthew crossed the threshold that afternoon. Matthew swallowed his initial response, and when he spoke, there was a warning undergirding it. Not your laddie boy anymore, Papa. And no, I'm not on the wanted list. Nobody up that way knows my real name anyway. I didn't go by Durant in Vancouver or thereafter. And even if I was poaching on Hudson's land, I never killed nobody over a pelt. If Hamish Jarmus wants to trek 2,500 miles down here over some dead beavers, he's welcome to come shackle me up for his trouble. But I'd bet any odds that he won't. The fire crackled in the silence. You'll stay here tonight, Nathaniel said. This was not a question. If it's any inconvenience, I can rent a room. Don't be a fool, you'll stay here. Your room is as you left it. Matthew took that in. Thanks, Papa. Nathaniel pushed himself up from the chair. I'm for bed. Turn the fire and put out the lamps before you hit the sack. Matthew and David nodded. Nathaniel headed up the stairs. David had a sip of the small glass of whiskey his brother had poured him and basked in the warmth of it. It's good to see you, Matthew. It's good to see you too, my big little brother. Like Durant, James Cox was not having what he would necessarily call nightmares. He was having vividly detailed, precise, and unerringly accurate journeys into the past. Before coming to France, he had left Mississippi just the one time prior, and the memory of that sojourn was where he was transported to as he slumbered. He and his daddy, Richard Cox, had driven the Ford to Jackson and then taken the trains all the way up to the land of the northern aggressors, who had so recently marched south to take away their right to own properly paid-for and well-trained-up slaves. It was a certain historical fact that no society functioned without a steady supply 
of inexpensive labor, and as distasteful as slavery might look, Daddy Cox was sure that learning to do without it would likely be the end of the world. Paying your laborers a living wage cut right into those darn profit margins, and he resented it every goddang day. Whenever the check registers came to his desk for his signature to pay the employees, Daddy wanted to vomit and smash breakable things. His own daddy would have died before cutting checks that size in exchange for manual labor, and as a matter of fact, he did. He had been killed at Manassas by a stray cannonball that bounced twice before it hit him in the legs. A terrible misfortune. But better that than to suffer through the aftermath of the war, Richard the Younger thought. Losing the war, that alone would have killed his daddy, bouncing cannonball or no. On the upside, come the dawn of the new century, business was a-booming. The Cox family had made their first financial killing in 1592, when the very first Sir Richard Cox circumvented British law. He paid cash for the good ship Concordia, traded muskets and tobacco for black flesh and bone in Dakar, then hauled some 400 men and women in chains from Senegal to the West Indies. There, they cut acres and acres of sugarcane until they up and died. Shrewd businessman that he was, instead of risking life and limb to strike out for Africa again, he began the much less risky occupation of hauling men, women and children from the West Indies up to Charleston, where they would fetch a much higher price from the industrious landowners of the colonies. He cornered the market there for five years before deciding that paying his sailors was a massive financial drain. He cut them loose, sold his good and bloody ship Concordia at auction for a profit, then gathered up the last batch of prime slaves and purchased expansive cotton and tobacco plantations from Mississippi to Virginia, stocked them with paid-in-full laborers, then sat back and laughed. He married well and had three sons and three daughters. He died in his own bed of stomach cancer. As the pain consumed him and made his final six months seem longer than the first sixty years, it struck him as an odd thing that now his stomach was eating him. When it was finished devouring him, there was nothing left but his plantations, his bank accounts, and the slaves. Those were all passed on down the line, father to son to son to son, and so on, until the master Richard Cox of July 21, 1861, got his legs blown right out from under him while trying desperately to hold on to the scions of these living family heirlooms. The final slave owner of the Cox clan bled out just north of Manassas, Virginia, in a county named in honor of Prince William, Duke of Cumberland, affectionately known as the Butcher because of his mass murder of Scottish Highlander men, women, and children after his brutal victory at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. The original patriarch, the first Sir Richard Cox, too, had a county named after him, and it was in that very Cox County, Mississippi, that James Cox made his start in the world. 
And yes, it was not the same type of auspicious beginning that previous coxmen had seen in the land of high cotton. But his daddy had been hard at work, carving out a new path for the Cox clan. The family still held all the plantation land in Mississippi that they had taken over once the Choctaw were dealt with. They had black sharecroppers working all of that land, which was almost as good as having slaves, but not quite. So the 20th century Richard Daddy Cox had bolder things in mind. Daddy had been quick to follow the northerner's way of industrialization, because if you cannot steal your enemy's good ideas and make them your own, what is the point of having enemies? Even the Richard Cox, who had been killed at Manassas, had been ahead of the curve on industry. He saw conflict coming a mile off, and boy howdy had his foresight paid off, at least initially. He had taken up an ownership stake in the Palmetto Ironworks as early as 1855. Checks from Palmetto Ironworks poured in on a steady basis up to and throughout the War of Northern Aggression. It had been a profoundly good investment. Unfortunately, after the war began, payments started flowing in Confederate currency instead of U.S. dollar bills. Cox soon realized the error of his ways. In truth, the sole reason he decided to finance and lead his own infantry unit into the Civil War was because one night he awakened in a cold sweat as his subconscious realized that if the Union won, the hundreds of thousands of grayback bills in his vault would be better used as toilet tissue. Again, his intuition was correct. Given how things turned out in the long run, he would have been just as happy not to live to see that day. James's daddy took the lesson. In 1901, when a careful review of the financial books revealed that the family still held the deed on an abandoned factory in Charleston, the young father travelled up to visit the shuttered assembly lines and drop forges of Palmetto Ironworks. It still housed all of the equipment for manufacture of muskets, forging of bayonets and cavalry sabers, and the pressing of lead musket balls and ten-inch artillery shells. It was obsolete, but it sparked the 20th century imagination of Daddy Cox. He had a young family to feed, and people would always need killing. Why not find a way to get into production and make those goddang northerners foot the bill? Daddy sold the Palmetto Ironworks and applied the proceeds to his new fancy. Cox Arms, of Cox County, Mississippi, provider of only the finest in firearms and sporting men's equipment. It did not take him long to procure his first government contract. It was on his third trip up north to break bread with the northern aggressors that he decided to take his son with him. Unfortunately, James's older brother, the heir to the throne, Harlan Cox, went down sick with the croup. So instead of wasting the money he had already spent on train fare for two, Daddy decided to take his 12-year-old son James to see the capital city of the enemy. There, Daddy planned to do his best to loot and plunder their treasury, armed with just a charming smile, a God-fearing soul, and a hearty handshake. It was, by far, the type of war he was best suited to, for a rich little 12-year-old cracker from Bumblefuck Cox County, Mississippi, 
Washington, D.C. was a wonder. When they got off the train, at Union Station, Daddy hocked up a gob of phlegm and spat it on the pristine tiles beneath the sign. The name of the grand white marble train palace was salt and lemon in an infected wound. A wound that would not heal, but grow more foul and pustulant over time. There was a sickness in the shame of loss that southern white men and women would continue to pass to their children via mother's milk for as long as they could. They turned their anger away from the goddamn Yankees who vanquished them on the battlefield and toward the descendants of their own former slaves. It was to be a pitiful and criminal, violent and insidious, clever and covert war. They used it as a salve on their sickness, a balm for their shame. But it was like the flowers in the pockets of Londoners during the plague. The sense of well-being it invoked only made the pestilence spread with more fervor through their churches, through their schools, through their government. Daddy Cox kept his vengeant heart contained. The wad of phlegm on the train platform would be one of just two overt acts of the day. The second was a walk to Ford's Theatre, where he and James sat on the curb and had their lunch and cold Coca-Colas on the opposite side of 10th Street. Daddy Cox occasionally looked across at the site of Honest Abe's execution and laughed. Can you believe an actor shot that emancipating son of a gun right there? There ought to be a monument. Daddy guffawed, and 12-year-old James laughed too, although he was not quite certain what he was laughing at. A big monument, Daddy, James said, and his daddy mussed his hair, squeezed him tight, and clinked his Coca-Cola bottle with his sons. Darn tootin'. Now let's head on back to the Capitol and see if we can't get our boys to appropriate funding for it. Back at the Capitol, Daddy Cox never made mention of funding a big monument to the heroism and handiwork of John Wilkes Booth, but he did show his younger son how to break a sweat and make a buck without ever lifting a shovel or pushing a plow. He glad-handed his way through half the southern delegation of cracker good old boys in two days and walked away with procurement contracts for an initial order of 10,000 rifles. The contract gave him the only paper he needed to walk into the bank and trust in Cox County and garner a loan that would cover the cost of all the equipment he would need to fulfill the manufacture of not 10,000, but 100,000 rifles. Over the next two years, he fulfilled that number three times over. A man of his word, Daddy delivered his first batch on time and on budget. They worked exceptionally well. Did not even blow any of your fingers off when you fired them. The contracts doubled and tripled, and in 1914, when the war outbreak began, a 20th century plague upon Europe, he was proven and ready to do his bit to provide the British and French the tools they needed to force a cure. At a substantial markup, of course. The arsenal of democracy was open for business, friend. But that did not mean everything was available on the cheap. In 1913, the Cox family had several hundreds of thousands of U.S. Union dollars sitting in the bank. By 1915, it was in the millions. The piles of U.S. paper had been joined by satchels full of their nephews and nieces, the highfalutin British pound sterling, 
and buku fancy-dancy French franc notes. High cotton, indeed. And Richard Daddy Cox was just getting started. In midsummer of 1915, there was a great stirring in the Cox household. That was the morning the delegation arrived. Harlan Cox, James's older brother, well past the bout of croup that kept him from the journey to Washington, was now a dashing southern gentleman of twenty-one. He had a quick wit and a kind of smooth charm that made every local white mother and father with an eligible daughter hope for the day he would ring their bell and come set on the porch for a spell to chat about the weather, the harvest, or the great European war. The heir apparent to the Cox family's multiplying fortune was, without question, the man of the county. He was last to the breakfast table, as usual. Harlan was not vain, but it was important to get his hair set just so. There were standards to uphold. He met James at the breakfast table with a rough kiss on top of the head and settled in beside him. He grabbed a thick slice of bacon before Mama Cox slapped his hand away and he bit into the delicious, salty, fried-up strip of pig meat. Harlan, honey, put that bacon down. Daddy hasn't said the grace yet. Well, time's a-wasting, Mama. We got quite the day ahead. Harlan smiled at Miss Jean, the black woman who Daddy and Mama Cox pretended was invisible until they needed something from her. Bacon's delectable today, Miss Jean. Jean answered quietly. Thank you, Master Cox. From behind the morning paper, Daddy's voice laid down the law. Don't you be eating no more bacon till I said the blessing, boy. You ain't lying when you say we got a heck of a day ahead, and if we ever needed God on our side, it's today. Harlan played at being chastened. Yes, sir, Daddy. He shrugged and grinned and winked at Miss Jean. Daddy, will you bless this meal? asked Mama Cox. Daddy nodded. Yes, Mother. He folded up his paper and set it aside. They all grabbed hands round the table and bowed their heads. James peeked up at Harlan, who grinned at his baby brother and gave his hand a squeeze. Daddy cleared his throat and began, Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty, through Christ our Lord. Bless us in our many trials and tribulations today, Father, for if we ever needed your favor, Lord, it is this day. Bless this food, bless this fine family, thy will be done. Amen. Amen, resounded the table. Harlan popped the bacon into his mouth and gave it a chew. A look of wonder came over his face. I think you're blessing work, Daddy. Why, this pig's even tastier now than it was before. Daddy stared at his son. Don't you blaspheme, boy. We got important business. But even Daddy could not help cracking a half-smile at his irrepressible firstborn, staying mad at the charming lad for any length of time, was just well-nigh impossible. James awoke, bathed in the glow of the memory, and his love for his mama and daddy. He hoped that they were safe and sound at home. He hoped he could find a way back there to join them, as soon as humanly possible. Renoir shook Durant's shoulder. As he came back to the living, he still smelled the Douglas fir, burning in his father's fireplace, then tasted the whiskey in the tumbler. Renoir patted his shoulder as he awoke. I know where we are. 
and I know where we can find shelter and supplies. Durant's mind could not quite form words yet, but he understood and thought through the fog in his brain as he came to his feet. The smell of wood burning was not a remnant of his dream. On the western horizon, a thick, billowing cloud of black smoke was rising into the clear blue sky. <laughs>